There are all sorts of things I appreciate about the Psalms. Something that I do appreciate constantly is the honesty of the psalmists and what they ultimately want. All sorts of things they pray for. And they pray for their enemies to stumble. And they pray for their own physical strength to increase. They long for wisdom and to be taught of God. They pray for pardon of sins. They pray for physical provisions. They look around them at distresses and they pray for the well-being of others. There are times when the psalmist will pray for what cannot be surpassed. Verse 4 is like that. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There is no quest beyond us. Our hearts were made for God, as John Piper once put it, to see God and know Him and to be in His presence is the soul's final feast. It is the feast that doesn't end. To know God is to have eternal life, and this is a life of eternal joy and peace in Christ. In verse 4, David prays for what cannot be surpassed. There's nothing that could be granted Greater than anything like verse 4. He prays for what his soul most deeply needs. If David wants this, and he says this as one who knows God, then I wonder if your heart also wants what David wants. That you could look at verse 4 and say, Lord, indeed, this is the great longing of my soul. I'm reminded of what David said earlier in Psalm 16. He said to the Lord, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David knows I was made for that. David's heart wasn't created for military battles. His heart was not made to be satisfied by his kingship in Jerusalem. His heart was not made to be filled with royal riches and earthly power. David's heart was made to know God. To dwell in the presence of the Lord. So we have to to step back and consider what is the prayer for which there is no surpassing request. And I would submit to you it is this, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That there is nothing but what is secondary to that in all the earth. Secondary requests, secondary answers to prayer in light of what cannot be surpassed, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's hope, this longing to know God and to be with God and to dwell in the presence of God in the fullness of joy in life. David has confidence in the present because this is his hope. That hope, that surpassing glorious reality which he will have in God alone strengthens his present confidence because David's path has curves and valleys. But this path leads to the house of the Lord forever. This path is dark and unclear. But the good shepherd is with him and guides him faithfully down the way. David's enemies are many. But God is almighty and is his defender and friend. It is the path that leads to the house of the Lord forever. So the more David has learned about the Lord the more we can imagine that he prays this way, shaped by the Scriptures he meditates upon. 
The more David has learned of the Lord, the more he knows how he can trust the Lord. How he will not be forsaken by the Lord, for the Lord does not abandon his people. In Psalm 27, these words brim with confidence. In verses 1 through 3, we see the confidence of the Lord with images here. The Lord is my light, image number one. And my salvation, that's number two. To skip the next question, going to the next line, the Lord is my stronghold. The stronghold of my life, that's image number three. There are declarations that are being made here in a threefold fashion. God is light, salvation, and stronghold. And yet, each of these declarations prompts a question. The Lord is my light and my stronghold. So, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Light and salvation. I think I said stronghold in line one. My light, my salvation, of whom shall I, uh, whom shall I fear? In this third image, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Image number three, of whom shall I be afraid? These declarations prompt questions, but they're very personal. The word my appears in each line. The Lord is not just a light for some. He is my light. He's not just a stronghold for others. He's the stronghold of my life. David's personal conviction here is strong. Because to say that God is light and salvation and stronghold is to teach theology with pictures. Is to teach what is doctrinally sound and true. That where there is darkness, God is light. Where there is distress and deep affliction and bondage to sin, God is salvation. And where there is the surrounding and overwhelming forces of the principalities and powers of this age and the raging dragon against us, God is the stronghold for His people. But David moves from theology to application because he says, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? What David believes about God affects David, you see. And it's similar to Psalm 23. The Lord is my... And you can fill in that blank with different parts of the Psalms. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. In Psalm 27, He's my light. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. He's just piling up these images. All of this is true. But for David, it has implication in what it means for him to follow God in this world. And it means while there might be much to be afraid, like being afraid in the darkness, God is my light. So whom should I fear? There are much distresses and afflictions of this life from which we need rescuing. God is my deliverer, my salvation. So David is challenging his normal human fears with what he knows to be true about God. He is battling his fears with theology. With what he knows to be doctrinally rooted in the word. Who is God? And being able to declare these things of God. That means something for us. And David personalizes it. That God is my light. My salvation. The stronghold of my life. And as a king. He would face some very uncertain. Unstable times. Such that in verses 2 and 3, we recognize this is the very kind of thing that someone in a royal position like David would face. Evildoers assailing against him. Adversaries and foes. These who seek David's destruction. 
He says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, those are the evildoers of line one. It is they who stumble and fall. God, in other words, is David's light, salvation, and stronghold. And so God's designs for David will triumph over the designs of his enemy. Joseph teaches his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 that what you intended for evil, God meant for good. God is able to take those things that in the hands of the enemy seem to be aimed at the destruction of David. But God prevails over his enemies. The evildoers in comparison to God, are as nothing. And we know the violence with which they intended to come against David. They come to assail him, to eat up my flesh. They're not coming to negotiate. They're they're coming for David's destruction. And David, by all accounts, as a political and social figure and leader, he would have reason to be worried and fearful in a human way, from a human perspective. And he pictures in verse 3 an army coming against him. So that these evildoers, it's, it's this military image. They've, they've come against him encamping. This army has taken up residence near him. And he says, my heart shall not fear. Because we'd understand if it started to. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Because we'd start to understand if confidence waffled and failed. These are the unthinkable realities, these horrifying experiences that someone in David's position would face. So he's, he's drawing up these very real-to-life cases that he would face. And he says, so what am I going to do? God is my light. God is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold, the stronghold of my life. So therefore, I will challenge that fear and I will challenge that unstable confidence with talking to my heart of what I know to be true about God. We might not be in a position where evildoers are assailing against us to eat up our flesh with armies encamping to destroy us. It may be the case, though, that like David, you will face what in your life seems to be the unthinkable. The thing you would dread. David is speaking about here what would be the dread of a ruler. And he says, so what shall I do in the face of what I dread? I will look to God. Who is God? My light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. That is who God is in the face of everything else. And then David speaks of his desire for the Lord in verses 4 to 6. He moves from talking about his confidence in God to his desire for God, which is all still connected in verses 4 to 6. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Now, I don't think this means this is the only prayer David's ever prayed. We recognize that in the many Psalms from David, there's all sorts of things on David's heart. This is a way of talking for David to say this above all. That's the idea here. This is the one thing. Like, Lord, this is that surpassingly ultimate thing. It's this one thing. This is what I'm going to seek after. I'm going to pursue it with prayer and desire unto you, O God. Here it is. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And we know it's on David's mind in Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, he opens saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And at the end, he's talking about goodness and mercy following him. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is David's confidence. And here he reiterates it in verse 4 in a different psalm. In Psalm 27, it's his one thing. 
This is what his heart is aiming at. This is the greatest thing. That there is nothing greater than God that we can receive from God. That God giving us himself. Life in knowing him. To commune with God. As a heart made new in God. There's nothing greater for God to give than himself. And so he says, oh God, to be with you. That's the image of dwelling with God. It's picturing the house, right? Because they're, they're in an age of Old Testament history where there are these earthly sanctuaries. There's the tabernacle under Moses, David's son. The, the Solomon will build the temple. And, and so picturing approaching God to be in his presence, symbolized by these sanctuaries, that's the imagery David knows. So that's the imagery that shapes his prayer. He, he, he's in this time of redemptive history before Christ. Before the sacrificial system and temple are fulfilled by Christ, who is the temple and tabernacling presence of God among sinners. So for David to pray this in his Old Testament way and where he was in history, it is able to be transposed in our redemptive frame. And we see in light of the all of the Old and New Testament storyline that to dwell in the house of the Lord means to know Christ and to dwell with Christ and his people evermore in the new creation. That's how God answers David's prayer. David will be raised from the dead and he shall dwell with the people of God in a new heavens and a new earth. This is the prayer God answers. When we pray this, that we might dwell in the house of the Lord, a heart that longs to know God. Friends, this is the prayer God loves His people to pray. That we will dwell with God and know God evermore. All the days of my life is picturing a life of worship unto God that's starting in this earthly frame and then continuing on eternally to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple. What draws David to this prayer is what he beholds to be true of God. This language about beauty of the Lord is a phrase trying to capture the surpassing excellencies and glories and greatness of God. And David longs to be in the presence evermore of the God who is above all he has made. That the beauty of the Lord, let's say with this phrase, is David saying, I want to behold and to be entranced with your greatness and supremacy. To inquire in his temple is a posture of trust And prayer and communion. In other words, he comes with a heart seeking after God. There is nothing in our lives more pressing and more important than that we be a people whose hearts are seeking God. To know him. And that we might desire what is the kind of thing that cannot be surpassed. And that is to dwell with God. And with his people. David is confident that this God who reigns supreme, who is light, salvation, and stronghold, is the deliverer David can trust. He says in verse 5 For he, God, will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. Shelter and tent in verse 5, I think, are still playing on the idea of the house in verse 4. Because the shelter or tent recalls that portable tabernacle from the days of David. David, in verses 4 and 5, is still talking about how God is my refuge. He's just using what in his day were the sanctuary terms to pray about that with. 
But he's talking here in verses 4 and 5 about God being my refuge. He will hide me. He will lift me high upon a rock. You see, David pictures in verses 2 and 3 being assailed by enemies. They're coming up against him in verse 3 like an encampment. And he says, so here's what God does. He delivers. Lifts high upon a rock. In verse 6, now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies. This is the failure of the enemies to triumph over the purposes of God. You can trust the purposes of God in your life. You can trust the goodness of the Lord and the faithfulness of God. And you can look at David's language here and you can trust that God is the refuge for his people. This imagery of being lifted upon a rock means lifted out of the grip of the enemies. In verse 6, they were all around me. But now David has a vantage point. It's actually a desirable position, isn't it? Because David's not in their midst anymore. He's been lifted above his enemies. So David says... I will offer in his tent, there's more tabernacle-ish language, right? I'll offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make melody to the Lord. If God is our light, salvation, and stronghold, the deliverer of his people, then we are those who worship him in response. Joyful worship is the rightful response to the delivering God. That is who God is for us. So we sing with joy and we make melody unto God. I will sing and make melody is David's declaration in the midst. And we know David sings and makes melody because we have this psalm. Psalm 27 is proof that David is putting pen to paper singing unto the Lord. What are the psalms but songs? And that's what they are. So yes, David says, I will sing. And he's saying that in a song. He's talking about hymning unto God, psalming unto God, singing unto God. I will make melody to God. One of the ways David's going to fight his fear is he's going to sing. One of the ways he's going to challenge the afflictions and sufferings that seek to discourage him and leave him despondent is he's going to look unto God and make melody to God. And that will do something for David's soul. In verses 7 through 12, he moves from describing his confidence in God and his desire for God to specific petitions to God directly. To this point, he's been describing who God is to him and his desire for God and his confidence that God's going to deliver. And then in verses 7 through 12, direct prayer. Hear me, O Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. David doesn't mean abstract answers here. He has in mind, I'm surrounded by my enemies. I trust you, O Lord. Lift me high upon a rock. Hear me when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer. For God to answer David in the way David's thinking about it, it would look like God bringing his rescuing grace. Hear, O Lord. Be gracious in answer. You have said in verse 8, seek my face. Well, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. The proof that verse 8's words are true for David's heart is how he described his heart in verse 4. What's the one thing he wants above everything else? You can make a list of things you want. Okay, David would have many different requests for which he would love for God to act upon. The Psalms are filled with petitions. But through them all, penetrating through them all, what's the one thing? 
And it's to seek God in the beauty of the Lord in his temple, the house of the Lord, all the days of my life, David says. Because that heart's desire affects everything else. It affects everything else. And if what your heart seeks most of all is not God, that also affects everything else. Because your heart is seeking to look for and hope in and find refuge in what's not God. David says, and that may not be true of me. I want my heart seeking you. Who are you, God? Salvation, light, stronghold. That's who you are, God. So here you see in verses 7 and 8, he says, hear me, be gracious to me. Lord, you said seek my face. As much as I can tell what is true in my heart, that is what I want, oh God. I'm seeking your face. So don't hide your face from me, verse 9. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David is able to pray this, and he's able to pray it with confidence, because he knows of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God as he is in covenant with his people. And so when he prays, hide not your face from me, he can pray this knowing God won't hide his face from him. When David prays, turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help, he knows that God who has been his help will be his present help and his future help. Cast me not off, don't forsake me, O God of my salvation. David can pray this knowing God answers this because God loves his people, never forsakes them, and is their shepherd in the darkest valley. In fact, God is with David when even the most important kinds of earthly relationships dissolve and fall away. So David says in verse 10, what could be translated, actually probably should be translated something that's like this, even if my father and mother abandon me. In verse 10, on the face of it, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, it can sound like David is saying, well, you know, here's the way things ended with my parents. Well, there's no indication in 1 and 2 Samuel that David's parents' relationships were such that he would say this. And because this could be rendered, even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. This is probably the hypothetical of saying, Lord, should all earthly relationships, even those most important unto us, fall away? What is it that remains? The everlasting, steadfast, moment by moment, love of God. You, O Lord, will take me in. There's such a comfort there. Because as much as we would love to rely on all of our human relationships around us, we all will be disappointed and we will disappoint. In the nature of our fallen humanity and despite all of our best of intentions, we cannot be God for someone. Only God can be God for them. Only Christ could, we could not say, listen, I'll be your light, salvation, and stronghold. That's not what David says. David says, it's only Yahweh. Only God can do for us what God alone can exist for his people and be their light, salvation, and stronghold. What we do is we come along with one another and we look to God together. We confess who God is together. We bear our burdens together. We walk and struggle together. But we are clear that it is God who is our light, salvation, and stronghold. And though every earthly relationship fail us, the Lord will take us in. So he says in verses 11 and 12, 
Teach me. I want to learn, Lord. I want to learn what it is to know you, what it is to walk with you. I want to know who you are from your word. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. See, enemies won't, enemies won't keep you on a level path. Enemies won't keep you on the way that is straight before God. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Because there are many wicked with their counsel seeking to direct your path. Oh, here's what you should do with your life. Here's what you should pursue. Here's how you should prioritize. They, they look to you with counsel they want to give. And he says, Lord, I need to be taught by you and led on a level path. There are enemies around me. People who do not have my soul's good in view. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. Lord, lead me in your way, because the path of the enemies is the path of destruction. Keep me from that way. Blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, scoffers. They set up their table and they say, hey, there's plenty of room. Come and sit with us and let's scoff and mock and heap scorn upon the righteous. And he says, Lord, what I need, I need to be taught your way, led on a level path. So having alluded to Psalm 1, what does the blessed man do? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And he's like a tree planted by streams of waters. What we need is to believe what God says in his word. He says, you'll take me in, teach me your way, lead me. You're the faithful shepherd. And here's this valley. Well, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you're with me. He says in verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. Oh, they've got plans. They've got a will. And he says, Lord, let not them prevail over me. Don't give me up to them. For false witnesses have risen against me. They breed out violence. So David is facing things like false accusations and violent plans against him. And he knows his ultimate hope is God alone. So he ends his psalm in verses 13 and 14 with words of confidence. And he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, one way people have sometimes taken this is that David isn't referring to earth at all. I think there's an initial fulfillment of this hope on earth, however, because the psalmists want to be delivered from death and they want to praise the Lord for all their earthly days and they want to see the redeeming hand of God at work in them. And David's confidence is that the Lord is not done with him. I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so he does speak, I believe here, of earthly life as this land of the living, but... But if he shall gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all his days, and if he shall experience joy and peace and pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore, then we're talking about a reality that doesn't end with earthly death. In other words, if even this life can be called the land of the living, even though the living die, then how much more in the age to come with resurrection life when death shall be no more shall we look upon the goodness of the Lord? So even if David's initial idea is about the goodness of the Lord to be known and cherished even in this life, then what a taste of glory and life to come this land of the living and dying must be.
These days and years become what C.S. Lewis described as the shadowlands. The shadowlands that would be eclipsed by the greater life and light of God. And we know David's hope is there. Lord, you're the light of my salvation. He says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. That even in this life, what he knows to be true of God shall be something he beholds with his mind's eye and heart. I don't think David is expecting in his earthly days that he's going to have some sort of physical or tangible sight of God. I think to look upon the goodness of the Lord is like Moses in Exodus 34, where the Lord's glory passes by Moses and Moses is hearing God declare what God is like. And in that sense, Moses has beheld the truth of who God is. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And that He is good, unfailingly good. When David says, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord, I want you to know that every time we sit and we open our Bibles together, whether we're sitting in church together, whether we're in our own homes together, and we look upon the truth of God's Word, and we cry out to God for help and strength, we are looking upon what is true of God. We're beholding His truth. We're looking upon the goodness of God. And even in these hard earthly days... We can find comfort and refuge in God. And if this earthly life can be called the land of the living though we die, then how much greater what is to come be the land of the living. So he says in verse 14, not just for himself, but for us, wait for the Lord. Who's David talking to there? Well, he's not talking to God. In verse 14, he's, he's been talking to God with petitions that started in verse 7. And he's been reflecting with I language. I believe, I shall look upon. And then earlier at the top of chapter 27, whom shall I fear, of whom shall I be afraid? But you see, the Psalms were never meant to end with David. The Psalms are for us. So here's David. And his word is echoing 3,000 years later. Here's what he says to us, Cosmos Dale. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Because as we study the Psalms of David, as we look through what he knows about God, and we see how to ask the right questions and apply the right things to see the wisdom needed and the steps before us on this path in the land of the living, we realize waiting for the Lord is an active hope. We wait for the Lord, not with some sort of disengaged, passively waiting thing, occupying ourselves wholeheartedly with what is distracting. Instead, waiting for the Lord is an engaged heart posture. You just imagine somebody, you're coming upon a scene, here they are sitting on a chair, and they're doing all sorts of things, and you say, oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm just waiting. But their mind is elsewhere, and they're occupied with other things. That's not what this waiting is. Wait for the Lord is hand to the brow. It is looking with anticipation and confidence. It's a heart posture of hope. So he says, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Now where would that strength and courage come from? Well, in, verse 20, in chapter 27, David opens saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation and my stronghold. Of whom shall I fear and of whom shall I be afraid? What if... When David says, be strong and let your heart take courage, what if what he means is, take courage the same way I'm taking courage? Wait for the Lord the same way I'm waiting for the Lord. Be strong the same way I'm drawing strength. By looking to God 
and to His Word. And He repeats it, doesn't He, at the end of verse 14. And the repetition is for emphasis. We pay attention when things are said more than once. He says, not only wait for the Lord at the top of the verse, He ends the verse with the same exhortation, wait for the Lord. It's not easy to wait for the Lord. It's not easy to have a heart posture of trust in a fallen world. I loved a particular line that Paul Tripp said one time about the Psalms. Paul Tripp says, I think the Psalms are in the Bible to keep us honest. He says, because in the Psalms you see the messiness of faith. You see the toil and struggle of holding on to God in the midst of a dramatic brokenness of the world. And sometimes that brokenness is more keenly felt than other days and weeks. I think Tripp is right. In the Psalms, what do you see these psalmists doing? They are wrestling in their faith unto God. Looking unto Him. Despite all the tragedies and mess and affliction. Outward and inward. They are looking unto God. Determined that He is their hope and refuge and saving deliverer. So here's what I think this means. I think this means we can hold on to Psalm 27 morning, noon, and night. I think we can say in the morning that the Lord is my light and my salvation. And I think in the middle of the day we can remind us ourselves of that. We can remind ourselves of that truth in the evening that the Lord is the stronghold of my life. And by we have the rest of the biblical story. We have biblical story that had not yet been written in the days of David. We can say unashamedly and confidently, Jesus is my light. Jesus is my salvation. And Jesus is the stronghold of my life. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together.